Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. Coming to you since 1997 on KKUP Radio with over 250 guests and still going strong in their 12th year of weekly broadcasting, the International Taz and Paula Show brings to you expansive, engaging, and groundbreaking intensity on radio and now on the Internet airwaves today. Listen live every Thursday or visit Embracing Mother Earth's archives, exclusive articles, Ask questions and receive actual answers from guests anytime at TazAndPaulaShow.com. Taz and Paula's special guests are experts coming from all walks of life, energizing our lives with a passion that inspires and teaches us with each of their compelling personal life journeys, with roots from ancient wisdom and bridging it with modern science. We hope today's show touches the wisdom of your heart. And now... Taz and Paula. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, we're waiting for Taz to come on the, the air. Taz, are you there? Hey. Yeah, I You am. are? Oh, you're um, going in and out. Just a moment. Uh-oh. Okay. Okay. How am I doing? Well, fine. Well, as we okay. all know, as we all know that um, Martin Luther King's Day is coming up soon, and what a way to celebrate his birthday other than having our special guest today. Dr. Lawrence Edward Carter, Sr., Dean of the Martin Luther King, Jr. International Chapel at Dr. King's Alma Mater, Morehouse College in Atlanta, Georgia. You are now listening to the Taz and Paula Show, and I'm Paula. And I'm Taz. Well, this coming Saturday, January 14th at 5 p.m., Christ Unity of Sacramento will celebrate the Martin Luther King Jr. holiday with a special ceremony and program celebrating the world-renowned exhibit of Gandhi, King, Ikeda, a legacy of building peace. This expansive walking exhibit highlights the lives of Mahatma Gandhi Dr. King and Dasaku Ikeda, three men from different cultures who followed a common path of profound dedication and achievement to improve the lives of all people. The celebration features a keynote address by our guest today, Dr. Lawrence Edward Carter, Sr., Dean of the Martin Luther King, Jr. International Chapel at Dr. King's alma mater, Morehouse College in Atlanta. Dr. Carter has taken the initiative to promote the community building modeled by Gandhi, King, and Akita through this exhibition by giving an annual GKI Peace Building Award. And this year, Dr. Carter will confer the award to Sacramento spiritual leader and peace activist, Reverend Michael Moran. We uh, were unable to reach Dr. Moran to be with us today. But, um, Paula, what else? Well, other luminaries who have received this honor include President Nelson Mandela of the Republic of South Africa, His Royal Highness Prince Al Hassan bin Tala of Jordan, Dr. Michael Noble, Chairman of the Noble Family Society, and President Mikhail Govacek of the former Soviet Union, to name just a few. And I don't even guess how uh, Michael Moran feels to be privileged to be amongst these great people. Reverend Ross, uh, Morehouse College, Alama nominated Reverend Moran for this award. Although uh, Reverend Ross can't be with us today, we want to tell him that uh, we really appreciate him organizing this event and bringing it to Sacramento, to Northern California. And um, 
it's just a wonderful honor to have Dr. Carter Carter with us today. And um, we welcome you, Dr. Carter. Are you there? Hello, Dr. Carter. Hello. Hi, Hi. Dr. Carter. Hi. This is Taz and Paula from the Taz and Paula Radio Show. And we just got through introducing you, and uh, we told everyone out there that uh, you are the dean of the Martin Luther King Jr. International Chapel. Mm-hmm. And our first question today is, when you were a little boy, did you ever dream that you would have such a position? <laughs> <laughs> I think the honest answer to that is yes. In the first grade, I used to look out the windows in the direction of the Ohio State University, well aware of all the conversation in the city about that great campus, and used to think about when I would be there and the work that I would do afterwards. And I've always believed that I would have a very significant job that would put me many places, including in the White House. And it has happened. Wow. 37 countries. Well, um, I watched the the YouTube film about your life, Mm -hmm. and uh, you said that one day when you were a little boy, you looked across the street when it was divided between blacks and whites, and you said to yourself, you're going to be on that side of the street one day. (laughs) That is true. (laughs) In fact, there was a rope um, down the middle of an outdoor theater where citizens of Dawson, Georgia, used to go to what probably would be called a minstrel show. Medicine men would sell tonics that could cure everything. Blacks sat on one side of the rope and whites on the other. And I distinctly recall sitting on the end of one row looking across at all the white people thinking, well, they're no different from us. Why this separation? And one day I'm going to tear that rope down. Martin Luther King Jr. beat me to it. Wow. And in truth, he came to you. Actually, met him in person. Yes, as a tenth grader, for the first time, and on that occasion, which was quite a surprise to me, because I had been told that the office that he was in was empty. I had gotten permission to go in to look at the pastor's bookshelves. After I closed the door and started looking around at wall one and wall two, when I got ready to turn to wall three, Martin King was sitting in the corner, had been watching me all the time, along. So conversation started, and he recruited me to come to Morehouse College. Some neighbors talked me out of it, but when I heard him the second time in my freshman year of college in Virginia, I knew that I was supposed to be at Morehouse, and I tried to transfer, but I found out my mother couldn't afford it. So that was when I decided to get the rest of my education, which turned out to be three more degrees at Boston University, where I could be taught by professors who taught him. It happened. Then I was invited to be the head of the King Center at Boston University, uh, working on my doctorate. I did that for three years and went back to finish my Ph.D., and I prayed and asked for a second opportunity where I could complete my tribute to him, and the prayer was answered when I was invited to be the first or founding dean of the Martin Luther King Jr. International Chapel at Morehouse College. Now, what was it like the very first time that you stood before him. I mean, did you have any questions for him or or how did that that communication between you and he take off? Well, the first time it was very easy. He was very relaxed. Uh he was quite surprised that someone had suggested that I shouldn't go to Morehouse and so he argued more vigorously why I should. I accepted it. The third time I met him was at Harvard when he came to preach in Memorial Church. I had one of uh, my textbooks for him to autograph. He was two to three hours late coming because the press held him up at Logan International Airport, but no one moved in Memorial Church, which was an overflow crowd. And I reminded him of our previous meetings. He said he remembered me and that he was glad I was at Boston. And then the final time, he came to speak in Boston uh, at the Ford Hall Forum, the New England uh, School of Music. And I went to hear him, and we stood on the sidewalk and uh, with uh, another person and talked before a cab took him to the airport. So those were the four times I met him. Conversations were never long. 
but it was enough. After my second time hearing him, I knew he'd be my mentor for life. Hmm. Well, if you hadn't gone to Boston, uh, you wouldn't have met your wife. I mean, when I was reading your bio, that's where you met your wife. So that's I think true. everything was everything was in perfect order. Yes, and she got her second degree from the New England Conservatory of Music, where Martin King's wife, Coretta Scott, got her master's degree as well. So, so the lives are very parallel. In some ways. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, well, we don't want it to be parallel in all ways, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> right. Now, uh, are you the founder of... Uh, because oh, we're calling from Northern California, and you're going to be at the Christ Unity Church with your exhibit yes. and and um, giving an award. Uh, are you the founder of the exhibit? Yes. What process did you go through? Maybe you could explain to the uh, listeners what the exhibit is all about and what process it took to get it together. Well, it was kind of all... Uh, not planned from the beginning. It all started when I was sitting in my office uh, after the announcement had gone nationwide regarding the shooting at the Columbine High School in Colorado. You do recall that. Mm -hmm. And I got a phone call from an alumnus of Morehouse uh, from California, uh, the Reverend Amos Brown, asking me, what I was going to do in response to that uh, in terms of chapel programming. The question caught me a little by surprise. I had not thought about that. But after hanging up, the idea came to me, because it was 1999, that the century and the millennium was ending and that I should think of some way to document the century. And so I decided that we should claim the Gandhian philosophy of nonviolence and merge that with the Kingian philosophy of nonviolence and found an institute that would do the work of nonviolence and peace uh, inspired by the Columbine High School shooting and try to program around issues of domestic nonviolence, war and peace, international violence, religiously sanctioned violence, and try to conscientize people on the roles they could play as individual citizens to help bring about world peace, thinking all along that there would never be world peace until there was peace between the faiths. So this would take us more in the direction of interfaith dialogue and interfaith engagement. And so I decided to have what we called Millennium Sunday in which we would found the Gandhi Institute for Reconciliation which today has become the Gandhi King Ikeda Institute for Global Ethics and Reconciliation. And when this got in the newspapers I got a phone call from a Buddhist professor uh, at uh, Clark Atlanta University, uh, Dr. Ann Fields Ford, in their School of Social Work. And she said, uh, have you seen the paper? I said, I have not. She said, is it true you're about to do peace work? I said, I think that's one way to characterize it. She said, uh, have you ever heard of the SGI? I said, I have. Uh, she said, you know, we do peace work. I said, I am aware. She said, would you like to know more about our peace work? I said, I certainly would. She said, may I come to see you? I said, you may. Within 10 minutes, she was in my office. And she was startled when she saw all of the historical photographs. We talked, and the conversation ended with her saying, would you like to meet some of our leaders and read about Dr. Ikeda and his peace work? I said, I would. In a few days... Uh, they arrived in my office, a delegation from as far away as Tokyo, Los Angeles, Chicago, and Miami, as well as Atlanta. I was quite surprised, and they introduced themselves and talked about their work, and then I talked about the chapel work. And uh, 
we had so many points of agreement and similarity. We went to lunch, and we talked so much, we didn't eat. And we, uh, they brought me many books of Dr. Ikeda, and I started reading them. I was quite surprised how compatible his views were with Dr. King's. I had not heard of him, uh, but I'd heard of the SGI. In fact, they came to the chapel early on to put on a cultural pro- event in the King Chapel, which was quite spectacular. They emphasized culture, education, dialogue, and peace. And so another meeting occurred, and as we dialogued, I learned about their sophistication in putting together exhibits. Uh, Victory Over Violence is another one of their exhibits. And so I started pointing out the parallels in the lives of Gandhi, King, and Ikeda. I teach a course at Morehouse on the life and thought of Gandhi and King, and Ikeda will be added this current semester, which starts tomorrow for me. And so from this discussion, I described uh, a traveling exhibit that would parallel the parallel the three lives of the three gentlemen, not in terms of their achievements being equal, but in terms of the equalness of their dedication to nonviolence and peace. And it was from this discussion that the creation of the exhibit occurred. And so I helped uh, get the narrative together, and we had uh, great help with the photographs. And Gary Meary on the SGI staff, I helped to design this, and we found a company that could create it. It's a 2,000-square-foot exhibit that has now traveled all over the world. And in many countries, because it's in English, where English is not spoken, uh, our guests have designed the exhibit to linguistically uh, be appropriate to the nation we were in. So that is how we got started, and the rest has been history. And so what we're doing with this exhibit, we're trying to help people develop a vocabulary for peace. People really don't know when they're doing peace work and how to do it, and it's done every day. And we just want to encourage people to continue this because this is the only way world peace is going to come about. It's going to be, of course, in some respects, like the Occupy movement. One day, governments will get out of the way and let people have peace. Governments don't give us peace. We give peace to one another. And in our radio work, uh, we see this opening, and it's going very quickly. I mean, see this happening. I mean, and, and you've done all the groundwork for us to go from where we're at. But like you say, the Occupy group, and, and we see it all and every guest that we have been interviewing lately, this is mm-hmm. the words that come through, peace. Yes. So I think it's a natural instinct of human <laughs> species. Everybody wants yeah. to live at peace. That's such a great um, thought. And, you know, looking through your bio, we saw that communication was practically at the top of your your list with everything that you do and that is so powerful and when you when you actually approach people and you and or and you teach class i mean what's at the top of your class bringing forth this the skill of being able to help others to listen and to to you know, have a conversation that leads toward peace instead of conflict? Well, I think it's always the place you're coming from. I'm really interested not in conflict resolution, but in conflict transformation. Mm. But you have to come from with every person, regardless of their ideological or philosophical or religious views. You have to come from a place of love unconditional, unlimited, unqualified love. 
So that means that you have to respect everybody's humanity, every person as a sacred personality. And that means you talk to your opposition. You don't have enemies. You have maybe misguided friends. Everybody is redeemable. If you come from that place, then you don't go into rooms and meetings expecting somebody to give you something. You bring the atmosphere that you want with you. Mm. You be the change you want to see, as Gandhi said. It's the place you're coming from. You don't live with a sense of entitlement. You bestow affirmations on the world. You wake up each day with the determination that your life today will be a blessing to everybody you meet. Wow. That's beautiful. Yeah. And, you know, all the religions, the underground flow or the common thread is that exact message. Mm-hmm. Yes. Dr. Carter, you have your new book out, The uh, Humanizing Religion. No, it's not out religion. yet. Oh, it's not. Wh- oh, I'm now, sorry. Now, which, which, which one are you referring to? Well, I guess I was... Oh, I'm glad you said that because that triggers... Okay. The book I was thinking about was Humanizing Religion. No, that's and not out yet. No. Oh. No, the so one that I'm... That going... Well, Go that ahead. will be second. The one that I'm working on now, uh, most uh, earnestly is uh, my, maybe my definitive, um, uh, or maybe magnum opus, because it's over 800 pages. And that one, the working title is Nonviolent Coexistence in the World House. And the subtitle is uh, Building Interfaith Leadership Bridges in the Tradition of Gandhi, King, and Ikeda. In fact, I'll start the class tomorrow with the lectures from that manuscript. And I'm hoping both of these will come out this year, but I've, uh, I'm so heavily involved in programming uh, at the King Chapel and in teaching. And, of course, you know that involves uh, lectures and paper grading and tests. Time. And, uh, <laughs> you know, an awful lot of pastoral yeah. work also, because everybody yeah. wants to see you, the students, and I'm the chief supervisor of the pre-seminarians. Uh, that meets every Thursday at 5.30 of about 40 young men uh, who are headed for seminary, of which Kevin Ross, the pastor of the uh, Christ Unity, was one. He came out of our program. Mm. Well, you need to be 10 people. Yes, and so (laughs) the stuff is lined up on the table and my staff is waiting on me to get back. We're putting the finishing touches on the syllabi for tomorrow. And tomorrow wow. is also the Martin Luther King Crown Forum. Uh, and we, it's around the theme of interfaith. We have Ibu Patel as our speaker. Uh, he's going to be talking about interfaith as king. So you're going to be coming to Sacramento this coming Friday or Saturday? Uh, I do arrive on... Uh, I arrive, I think, on Friday morning. Yeah. And we want everybody to know it's you're going to be at the Christ Unity Church. Uh, that's yes. in Sacramento, Sacramento California. Yeah, my second time being there, yes. Be with uh, Kevin Cottrell Ross, who's the new senior minister there. And that's the Unity Church on Folsom Boulevard. So you're going to be presenting um, an award to... Yes. Uh, Reverend Michael Moran. Yes. And that that is really a prestigious award to have. I mean, people, <laughs> we were reading who had received it before, like Nelson Mandela. I mean, that's Yes, we have two. Award. Yeah, that is our, um, internationally we give what we call the Gandhi King Ikeda uh, Prize. A Community Builders Prize. And when we um, travel nationally, we present the Gandhi King Ikeda Award. But this is a peace and community building 
uh, tribute to people who have dedicated their lives to being interracial building blocks, uh, engaging in interfaith dialogue and understanding and cooperation, trying to build community, trying to help people relate to the divinity resident in all people, uh, trying to help people evolve to their highest potential. And the work of the Unity Pastors is very much in line with the philosophy, we believe, of uh, uh, Gandhi and King and Ikeda. Uh, they're much more open to the diversity and the religious pluralism and to the difference that seems to characterize the age of diversity. And so uh, we depend on people all over the world to nominate people and to send in uh, uh, bios, resumes of uh, these potential honorees and we send them through a committee and we very often will uh, affirm this and uh, Reverend Moran is uh, retiring and so he has, has spent his life helping to improve the community uh, in Sacramento and beyond. And so we thought that he would be a, a good candidate. And I have always... Uh, Kevin Ross, who comes from Morehouse College, is quite aware of this um, project. And uh, I have served as one of his mentors and watched him grow. And so it was not a difficult decision for us to make uh, I'm trying to support him in his in his work and uh, he has certainly been supportive of the ministry here at the King Chapel at Morehouse College it must be hard for someone to retire after they've been on the road and done this work on a continuous basis throughout their whole life it it you, know, you don't really retire. Yeah, <laughs> you change scenery, maybe, but you keep on doing it. Uh, yeah, it's, it's in your part blood. of you. Yeah, it's in your blood for sure. Right, right. Well, well, it's, we uh, want to go ahead. Oh, I was going to say. Um, also, it looks like you um, helped. Um, Erect the only statue in the state of Georgia That's honoring true. Martin Luther King Jr. Can you talk about that a little bit and and the journey you took and and uh, and pulling this all together? Well, no one here at Morehouse thought it could happen because the president, when I arrived, handed me a stack of letters that were one foot tall. He brought them down to my office and handed them to me, and I said, "What is this?" He said, "Well, this is my failure." And I said, failure at what? He said, at being able to get a statue in front of the King Chapel honoring Dr. King. He said, I have tried the government, private citizens, and corporations, and I have gotten nothing but no. And I looked at the stack, read one of the letters, and I said, I know where you can get this money. He said, where? I said, the National Baptist Convention, USA, Inc., uh, he said, oh, no, they would never give it. He said, the president of that convention is J.H. Jackson, Joseph Harrison Jackson. And he did not like Martin Luther King. In fact, when they named the street in Chicago that his church was on after Dr. King, he changed the address of his church. Well, that was national news, and I was familiar with that. That did happen. I said, but Dr. Jackson is getting ready to uh, step down. He said, no, he's not going to step down. He said, there's nobody strong enough to out preaching. I said, well, but he's getting up in years, and I think Dr. Jimerson, T.J. Jimerson, the general secretary, is going to run against him. He said he's going to lose because Jackson is so powerful. I said, I think he's going to win. And I asked the president for the Air Force to go down to the convention in Miami to approach Dr. Jimerson about help with the statue. 
And the president said, nope, I'm not going to give you that money. That's money wasted because that's not going to happen. He said, if you don't believe me, ask um, Professor Melvin Watson, and, and you'll see he will agree with me. Well, soon after that conversation with the president, I met Dr. Watson on the campus and asked him, and he said, your president is right. Dr. Gloucester is correct. You're not going to get that money out of the National Baptist Convention. And furthermore, he said, the Bible says you should not build any graven images. So he was against it on two grounds. So you know what I did? What? I paid my own way. I bought my own airfare to Miami on Delta. And there was a chapel assistant who was at the convention by the name of Porter Denson. And so I put my luggage down in the hotel room and went to the hotel that was the convention hotel, the Hilton, where I thought Dr. Jimerson's suite would be. Walked in and met Roscoe Cooper. Roscoe eventually became general secretary of the convention. We had been in school together in Boston, he at Andover Newton and me at Boston University. So I met Roscoe in the lobby and I said, where is Dr. Jimerson's suite? He said, I just left his suite. He's greeting people at a reception. He is running for president, and uh, you should go right up to the top floor. And I took the elevator and went right up, got in line, and eventually got to Dr. Jimerson, introduced myself, and said, Sir, I want to work with you. Gave him my name, told him it was from Morehouse College. And he took my arm, shook my hand, and he said, Brother Carter, I want to work with you. You see, his father, who had been president of the convention once, had worked closely with the president of Morehouse College, Dr. Benjamin Elijah Mays, the mentor of Dr. King. So, with that assurance, I went back to the hotel and told my student that I was returning to Morehouse because I had to teach a class the next day. I said, you can have this hotel room, and I want you to go to the convention and the night of the vote, when Alabama votes, and I think they're going to put Jimerson over, they will give him the presidency. I said, I want you to hold the phone up so I can hear the vote. <laughs> and then when it happens, I want you to rush to the platform to Dr. Jimerson and tell him that you've just spoken to me and tell him that I'm going to invite him to Morehouse and I'm going to declare it T.J. Jimerson Day. I think it was November the 18th. And Porter did that and he called me back and he said Dr. Jimerson got the message and he says he accepts and that he will come. And so I informed the president of the college, Dr. Gloucester, that Jimerson was coming, that he won the presidency. I picked Dr. Jimerson up at the hotel, the Hilton, in Atlanta, took him to Pascal's for breakfast. It's a soul food restaurant. And when we sat down at the table, Dr. Jimerson looked me straight in the face and he said, what do you want? I was startled. <laughs> I took a deep breath and I said, $100,000 for the only statue of Dr. King in the state of Georgia to be built on the plaza of the Martin Luther King Jr. International Chapel. I said, this statue won't just be a statue. It will be a wedding band that will reunite the convention with black higher education and will re-induct Martin Luther King Jr. back into the convention since he had been expelled by Joseph Harrison Jackson. Dr. Jemison looked at me and he said, Brother Carter, you've got it. Oh, Oh, what a perfect story for Martin Luther King Day. Then he came over to the school. I brought him over. He spoke to the Crown Forum. And when he got up, he said, The president of the National Baptist Convention has awesome power. And today I want to officially announce that the National Baptist Convention will present a check for $100,000 to Morehouse College to put up the first and only statue of Dr. King in Georgia. The place erupted in a standing ovation. 
The president looked at me. He was absolutely startled. He didn't say anything, but I later found out that he rushed to his office and called an executive meeting of the Board of Trustees and informed them. And I'm told that on that day, I could have been elected to anything at Morehouse. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, were you speechless? <laughs> were, were there a lot of tears? Did people have tears in their eyes when they heard that? Oh, my God. On the day we unveiled that statue, it was the biggest crowd we'd ever had for commencement. And the air was electric, absolutely electric. Jesse Jackson <laughs> was the speaker. And oh we had a, a big parachute covering the statue and had a crane to lift it. Mm. And when they saw it, Dr. Jimerson said it was a thousand times more magnificent than anything he had imagined. Wow. <laughs> and that's just an, a, <laughs> just one of your little things that you've done. <laughs> wow. I was, was going to say, you know, what 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 is it like? Um, I mean, trying to go out and and um, and take bids or something on this being prepared. I mean, where did you go to have this prepared? I mean, I was going wow, well, this, this is a huge. This is project. how it happened. One night I was at home and I got a phone call from the president. He said this was like eleven o'clock at night. He said I'm at the Fulton County baseball stadium where they've just dedicated the statue of Hank Aaron. He said, I want you to rush to the chapel. I'm bringing Ed Dwight, the sculptor who did the statue of Hank Aaron, and I want you to meet him on the plaza. We, I, this was near midnight now. <laughs> I, I got myself together, and I got to the school from Decatur, and sure enough, the three of us stood on the plaza, and I explained where the statue should go. He stayed over one night, and the next day in the president's office, we had a discussion about it, and then he said to me, the sculptor, and what will the statue look like? And instinctively, I stood straight up with my left hand at my side, lifted my right arm, and pointed with my index finger into the future. And I said, this is what it will look like, and that is what he did. Oh my God, it makes me want to cry. Oh, my God. <laughs> uh, it is... Uh... Is the picture of the statue part of the exhibit? Ah, I—that's a good question. It may be, and but I'm not absolutely certain. Ooh. But uh, the statue is probably one of the most photographed landmarks in the city of Atlanta. When people ask me, "Well, what is he pointing to?" I have two answers. Sometimes I'll say to the Promised Land the global promised land. And sometimes I'll say he's pointing to the Century Campus at Morehouse where the commencement is held, and he's saying to the students, by pointing in that direction, get there as fast as you can. <laughs> oh, well, such good answers for both, both of them. <laughs> oh. Well, I believe you'll be speaking at the... Um Christ Unity Church in Sacramento on Saturday the 14th. And yes. I, think, so I think it's about the ceremony at 5 p.m. So yes, will you be there? Meet, yes, if people want to meet you, I suggest everybody go, and it sounds like a beautiful exhibit, and I'll come up and introduce myself. Well, please do. And uh... Now, Taz lives down in... Um, the Bay Area of California. We come together through technical waves here, and uh, she won't be able to come. So, but okay. it'll be wonderful My to heart have will you be here. There. <laughs> we'll have wonderful to have you in our community, and bring this beautiful exhibit and your wonderful stories. And we thank you so much for being with us today. Very well. Thank you so much. Have a great day. You too. Peace. Uh-huh. Peace. That was a... Wasn't that a wonderful way to honor Martin Luther King Day? Wow. Talk about, you know, it was being honored and, and just, you know, absolutely, it, you know, what a privilege it is to be able to know the background of what's going on. 
It's incredible. And we feel incredibly honored to be able to have Dr. Carter with us. Mm-hmm. Well, we have a good friend that's with us to, to the rest of the uh, show. And everyone out there probably is familiar with him. It's Mir Schneider. And um, he's an internationally respected therapist and educator and founder and director of the School of Self-Healing in San Francisco and the author of Natural Vision Improvement Kit, Movement for Self-Healing, Yoga for Your Eyes. And he has a new book coming up, and we won't be able to see it till the end of the year. But Amir's with us today to explain about some workshops coming up and his travels. He's been traveling quite a bit, so he'll be sharing that with us. Amir, are you there? I'm here. I just wonder if also Jan is here. Are you here, Jan? Not yet. Oh, okay. Is she from eight eight three one? Yes. Can you hear me? Can you, can you hear me? Can you hear me? Wonderful. <laughs> because Jan is going to be the one who's going to teach the workshops in Aptos. But uh, I will be glad to talk to you about my travels, which were very amazing, actually. So okay, you want to start? Yeah, but Paula, I would just, you know, I, I just want to say how exciting. You have actually classes now in Santa Cruz uh, and and also a building of it for the shop workshops and everything. Is that right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, and I think I mean, John is a very professional and very good teacher of my work. So I'm really happy that uh, she's starting classes in the Santa Cruz, Monterey area. I am yeah, here. Welcome. This is Jan. My phone was muting out, so I don't know if you were able to hear me or not. Oh, Jan, that is so exciting to know that you're bringing Mayor's work here and you're doing I, – this is just wonderful because sometimes people can't go to San Francisco, so exactly. having someone so close, it's so fabulous, really. Uh, yes, and I'm just thrilled to be doing it. I love the, the work and um, just want as many people as possible to – to know it. Well, it's fabulous well, are, for our listeners because our listeners are in your area, so this is fabulous. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Thank you for having us. Well, this is a year for health priority, and of course, any year's the year for health priority, but you know what? We're living in the now, and we need your help, and we're so lucky to be able to have the capabilities at our side with you and Dr. Um, Snyder, you know, it's really neat. Yes, and there's so many simple things that uh, we can do to prevent problems in the future and to live a healthier life, and we just have to bring some awareness to it. <laughs> yeah, treat our our body like a temple. <laughs> exactly, exactly, and have fun with it. Yeah. Well, do you want to ex- explain uh, the, about the upcoming workshop and when it's going to be? Well, it's going to be on the, um, I'm sorry, I'm pulling up my calendar now, um, January 20, um, 21st, 20, yes, 28th, 20, and February 4th. That's right. That's right. I didn't want to say it wrong. And it will be from 10 until 1230 at my home in Aptos. And I live near a wooded area. It's very peaceful and quiet and beautiful and lots of sun. Generally, <laughs> um, and we'll be working on our bodies and our eyes. Very good. And uh, do you want to give out a phone a phone number where people can get in touch with you to find out more about the workshop? Yes, you can call me at area code eight three one three five nine one one eight three, and I can give directions and register you. Okay, and the phone number again is 831-359-1183. Yeah. And we'll give that out uh, in a couple of minutes again as well so people that grab their pencil and be able to to usher that information in. Uh, it's so it must be exciting that you get to do this. And do you have a beach that you'll be going to a beach and also doing some work on? Unfortunately, we're not that close to the beach. I mean, we'd have to get in the car and drive, not like at the school ah. where we could walk two blocks over, which is really nice. But we have a, a great horizon here to look at, too. 
say well, it that's near. good for the eyes to look over to the horizon. Yes, yes. So we we have plenty of that. Lots of little flowers to look at the details and um, everything we need right here. It's space is <laughs> all we need. These exercises are so um, available to everybody. Um, um, once you're people become aware of them, they're just amazed at what simple things can be done each day to um, see better and to move better. Well, rejuvenation is at the top of my list for this year. (laughs) (laughs) Mine too, always. (laughs) Yeah. I want to share it. Now, is this, uh, you've had classes at your home uh, previously? Just one other time at the end of October, November, I think it was. And those went very well. I had an average of about five people, which is what I'm needing in this small house. And um, it's it was really well received. Everybody had a, a great time. And it was it was hard for people to leave. You can always tell they had a good time when they can't, <laughs> can't bring themselves to leave. So, um, you know. Well, this this must be exciting for Muir also to to know that his work is uh, expanding out with other teachers and and in the South Bay. For me, it's very exciting, and uh, I want to actually talk a little bit more south. Um, in November, I had one of the best things that ever happened to me in my practice. Um, I traveled to Mexico. Uh, to teach a class, it's interesting. We rented a house, just like uh, John has a nice house. That house had a pool and it had a nice grassy area, and had, and a nice uh, little living room. And um, it, it was like really intense, just like Israel was. I came uh, at 11 o'clock at night. I arrived to Cuernavaca, Mexico, after a long time in the airport and uh, traveling for two and a half hours there. And I had to teach a class at 10 o'clock in the morning. And at first I was kind of tired from the travel and from overwork. I was in Europe before that. And then in the class, 12 people, uh, I woke up completely. There were three ladies who had one blind eye. All the other nine simply had arrows of refraction. So um, I did the regular thing that I normally do. I sent my two helpers to work with them, and they patched the eye that sees in a dark room and started to stimulate the other eye that doesn't see uh, with uh, blinking lights. Well, two of them took it pretty easily as if it simply is an exercise, but one of them was hysterical. She started to cry. She started to feel terrible, and it took her some time to calm down later on to join the rest of the class for the rest of the day and to work on her presbyopia, which is farsightedness in the other eye that sees 2020. And then two days later, I met her for three double sessions. It's two and a half hours each, and we worked with her. And the first question I asked her is, what caused you to be so upset when we patched your strong eye and started to stimulate the blind eye? And she said, I had a great sense of loss. My father committed suicide when he was 17. Sorry, when I was 17. And I didn't yet uh, recover from that. And I really understood her, and we hugged. And then after that, I tested her vision in her uh, blind eye, which had six unsuccessful retinal surgeries. The retina basically is detached and is basically spread and any physician would say she can't even see light, but uh, we saw that she did. She was able to see um, under lamplight. Um, basically, if you look at the big letter that you see in a doctor's chart, like the big E or the big C, she was able to see that letter. Uh, she wasn't able to see that letter, so she was able to see something dark versus something light in a big chart. So we went to the dark room, and we uh, stimulated her eye. We found that in the nasal area, she couldn't see anything, so we we uh, uh, blocked the temporal area where she did see and uh, stimulated the nasal area, and we walked that up. 
Um, and then we massaged her, and next day we massaged her. We do the exercise of sunning that uh, John is going to teach in, in her place, where you close your eyes and you move your head from side to side. We again patched her eye, and then she looked at the chart, and she could read the first three letters. Now, you'd say it's much of nothing because it's the first three big letters of the chart, or the first three big lines sorry, of the chart. It's uh, altogether uh, six letters. But the interesting thing is a lady could see nothing one day, could see real substance the next day. And my two apprentices just were jumping up and down. I had to stop them. I said, you have to be neutral in our uh, in our work. And the two of them have actually great experience, and they're really good practitioners. And so uh, what happened is we met again, and beside the fact that the husband told me that whenever I go to Colombia, his house is mine, um, what happened is she told me that for four and a half years she felt unsafe as a driver because she could only see with the right eye, and so in order to see anything from the side, she would tilt her head to the left to see if there's anything in the left. But now she felt that she has vision in her left eye that was blind, according to her and her physicians, and she has more peripheral vision. So she felt wonderful about that, and uh, she uh, and that made me feel very good. It's one of the best breakthrough cases I had. And one thing I want to say, I'm going to go to Brazil in a town called Piracicaba with a um, uh, nice um, uh, instructors uh, uh, in my work and, and do a, a clinic where I would work on many people. Uh, I would teach people with another lady who recovered from muscular dystrophy in our work uh, to teach the rest of the world my work. I'm happy to have people in Mexico doing my work, but I'm really happy that finally in the southern part of San Jose and in the area of Santa Cruz, Monterrey, we have two very fine practitioners of my work, and I really uh, couldn't uh, say how much I'm happy that John is teaching the work. She's helping me work on a very serious muscular dystrophy patient now, and we're keeping her out of the wheelchair. Uh, she's very good in working with people with glaucoma. She does very good uh, body work and massage, and she's an excellent teacher. And before she was teaching her own classes, uh, she was teaching a bunch of classes at our school. She was teaching free classes on Thursday nights, and uh, she took on top of the regular training the uh, vision trainers uh, of classes and of individuals. So I really have a very good practitioner there, and also Sue DiPietro, who is a very good practitioner in uh, the southern part of San Jose. So we have finally people in the South Bay and in the Santa Cruz area who teach it, and uh, for uh, two and a half hours, you can learn the basics of my work if you come three times to her home from 10 to 12.30 and she uh, receives uh, her students like guests to her house, uh, you can learn quite a bit. Well, I was explaining your work to some friends of mine, and we're all in the age group where we um, go buy reading glasses, and they were all uh, excited, said, can this work help us so we don't have to use the reading glasses? Absolutely. And the yes. best time to start is when you're starting to use it or start to need to use it. The first thing that I would suggest is make sure that uh, you are reading in strong light so it will compensate for the stiffness of the ciliary muscles and the stiffness of the lens. Another thing is to look at the distance before you read. Uh, when you go to a restaurant and there isn't enough light, take a little flashlight with you to put on the menu. And pinhole glasses are much better than regular glasses, and many people can read with them. That's the first thing. And then uh, in our classes, we teach people to start to look at details. We have specific exercise that will constructively strain those uh, sluggish ciliary muscles and will make the lens much more convex. Um, uh, and if you, uh, you know, put the page really close to your eye, it really hurts for a moment, but then after that you put it in a regular distance and you can actually read uh, the print much better. And, of course, we teach the regular exercise of palming and sunning, and that's why I'm so happy to have John to teach people the basic things uh, for natural vision improvement 
And, you know, people who want to improve further will be able to come to my six-day I-class, which is going to be on February from the 23rd to the 28th of February. But I think that there is nothing as good as three uh, real short classes of two and a half hours that affect both the eyes and the joints that can make a very big difference. And I couldn't have a better person than John and also a better person than Sue in San Jose to come and preach it. I'm very proud of my students, I must say. Well, well, the uh, San Jose, Santa Cruz area is very lucky to have teachers in the local area. So, Jan, do you want to give out your phone number where people can get more information again? Yes, it's 831-359-1183. That's great. And, and may, I was just, oh, go ahead, Jan, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I wasn't, I wasn't going to say anything. Uh, uh. Okay. <laughs> but maybe you can tell us all how you came into this work, Jan. Ah, Yes, I um, was taking care of my sister for quite a while uh, at the at the end of her life, and I happened along a book on the, her bookshelf called Movement for Self-Healing, and it sounded awfully inviting. And um, After she passed, I, I went up to San Francisco and took Mary's class, and a whole world opened up for me. Um, I had arthritis in my knees that I still uh, work with, and... Um, I've gained so much strength, I um, I can't tell you what a difference it's made um, for my being able to get around. And um, when I see now where I was headed uh, physically, um, it's it's frightening that um, I I would I'm I'm not sure what I would be doing. But I know I couldn't get out of a chair without using my arms, and now it's it's not even an issue. Um, Things can turn around in a in a heartbeat, and I'm just so grateful that three years ago, um, I or almost four years ago, I picked up that book and took my health into my own hands. That's what I felt. Um, that self healing is really uh, not a magical, uh, wishful thing. It, it's it's a um, something that you you. You take on um, consciously, and it's not a, um, a a life's work in the sense that you have to dedicate your life to doing it. It just becomes part of your life, and it becomes a life work in that sense. Well, anything. I mean, Holly, Paula, and I both are are drum rollers for Dr. Meher's work. Um, I'm telling you, it. It shocks us <laughs> and, uh, and and excites us to be able to see what what's available. I mean, in every avenue of of one's life, it is just amazing. From mm-hmm. joints to eyes, and you know all those things that happen as we begin to um, progress up the age scale. Yes, yes, and being aware of our muscles and. Um, how we use the same ones over and over again, as Meryl teaches us, you know, that we have other ones that need to be used and uh, th- so they don't just wither away and the ones that we're using all the time don't get overused and strained. So I stress that point even more, what uh, John is saying, and this is that we have 600 muscles as most of us use only 50 out of them. So the ones that we use, we use to a point of strain and spasm and that's how so many people get to osteoarthritis uh, from using the same muscles again and again, like sitting all the time, like walking in the same manner all the time. And what we teach to do is to start and use muscles we have never used before so the joints will not be strained and overused by some groups of muscles and underused by others to the point that there is a wear and tear on the cartilage. And I'm really proud of Jan of teaching many other people how to overcome their problems when she herself came with uh, serious knee problems to me. And, in fact, um, Paula, in the same kind of age group that you're talking about, you know, Jan started this and moved herself forward and um, became much stronger and started to use uh, muscles that she did not use before and eased the work of her joints. And that was very Mayor, important. I, I, Mayor, share with others. I'm, 
Mayor, I'm yeah. sorry, but you know what? We're just out of time. But I, I need to give a couple phone numbers out for our listeners. And, um, okay, for Jan, the phone number in order to contact her in Aptos is um, 831-359. Uh, 1183, again, 831-359-1183. And, of course, the the School of Self-Healing in San Francisco, and that's 415-665-9575. Um, 74. 415-665-9574. 9574. Thank you, Mayor. Oh, my gosh. Blessings to you all, and um, thank you for being with us. And Thank start you, your, everyone out there, out, start your year out by uh, treating your body well. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All the school of self-healing. <laughs> okay. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you both. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. With the Lucky Land Plus, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. <laughs> 